Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Aaron and Greg and I are going to talk about Interbike 2017. By now, you've probably read a number of articles about what happened at Interbike a couple weeks ago, uh, but we thought we'd recap it here for you on our podcast. So I'm going to start off by asking you guys, how do you think this year's show compared to past shows? To start with that outdoor demo, I mean, it was tumbleweeds out there. So the spot where the shell buses dropped us off, uh, it used to be filled with tents in years past. There would be like a big um, food court, beer, bunch of people exhibiting. And, uh, you know, where once we'd have to shoulder our way through throngs of people and attempt to track down a bike and then end up sitting in line forever. I mean, there's no competition to get bikes really, except for at Pivot. There's little traffic out in the trails. I mean, there's not much going on. Yeah, it was uh, as sparse as the desert out there, I'd say. I mean, it was probably half the size of the demo compared to last year, maybe less than half the size, and last year was already pretty sad. So, yeah, not a lot going on out there. I think we our lap took less than 10 minutes probably, and when we loop back around, was, that's it. Yeah, that's it. We saw everything. Yeah. Well, all of us have been going to Interbike and Outdoor Demo for many years. Uh, I think it was my 10th or 11th year at Interbike. And what I noticed was with the Outdoor Demo and also with the Indoor Show, uh, like we're going to talk about, but you know, every year there were just fewer and fewer brands out there exhibiting. But this year it was a big drop, you know, like Greg and Aaron said, it was, it was almost like half as many tents set up this year. Um, whereas in years past, you know, even just four or five years ago, you know, Specialized was there and Trek and pretty much all giant. the major brands, Giant, uh, Rocky Mountain, you know, you could demo most of the upcoming model year mountain bikes. Uh, but this year there really, really wasn't much left. Someone on the bus on the way over to the demo was remarking they had been out the day before and they said that, you know, they thought 80 or 90% of the bikes that were being shown out there were electric bikes. And I don't think it was quite that many, but there were definitely a lot of electric mountain bikes. Um, that seemed to be the focus. They had like a special area. I don't know if you guys even went up there, but there was like a special spot where they had additional tents set up that was just all electric bikes. But then the ironic thing is that electric mountain bikes aren't allowed on the trails at Bootleg Canyon, you know, 363 days out of the year. I guess somehow they get an exception for doing these demo events, but a lot of the people don't even know that they're not allowed out there, uh, which is just kind of funny. But I thought it was pretty fun. I say I think that goes to the issue behind e-bikes in general, right? Like it's not very clear where or when you can ride these bikes, and you know the dealers either don't know or a lot of times maybe are willfully ignorant about that and like you said yeah i mean there's signs at bootleg canyon that say no e-bikes on these trails and then you know everybody that's out there demoing bikes is riding an e-bike so yeah hopefully they have permission for that (laughs) (laughs) i thought it was pretty fun when the three of us were cruising along and a guy comes whipping by on an e-bike and he's like hollering at us like oh these things are so much fun and uh, just assuming we were riding e-bikes and he's like oh wait you're not you're not riding e-bikes i think we're probably the only people out there uh testing normal mom bikes so that's pretty cool yeah his his exact words were uh this is a kick <laughs> so <laughs> right which is you know it's not uncommon i mean i 
felt the same way, I guess, the first time I rode one um, and maybe the second time. And it kind of parallels fat bikes, too. I think I said the same thing the first time I was on a fat bike, like, whoa, this is different and fun and kind of cool. But then for me, it's kind of the novelty is worn off for fat bikes and e-bikes, you know. But the funny thing is, even if you do love it and you still love it, you know, you go out there to Bootleg Canyon and you ride one and you're like, this is fun. I want to do this all the time. Sorry, on Wednesday, you can't do it there anymore. Like, that's that's the sad thing. And if people are buying bikes on the assumption that they can have that experience uh, regularly, then, you know, it's unfortunate, but they can't. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's one thing that you hear from a lot of pro e-bike people is, oh, they're fun. It's like, well, no one's denying they're fun. It's two wheels. It's outside. You're going fast. You don't have to work as hard. Oh, like, of course that's fun. Motorcycles are fun. You know, go-karts are fun. But, like, there's time and a place for them, and we haven't really decided what the place is for e-bikes yet. So I just, yeah, just lumping them in with mountain bikes is it's just getting old because they're a motorized vehicle. So they need to be treated as such. Anyway, not to go off on e-bikes but that's kind of i mean this was like inter e-bike honestly this was that was the show if e-bikes hadn't been there it would have been like six booths yeah absolutely and like greg mentioned uh there were there were a few companies that had traditional bikes out there and people were riding them pivot had easily the busiest booth out there but even companies like marin that you know are Good brands, but they're not brands that, you know, people get super excited about. Um, there were times during the day when all of their traditional bikes were out and, you know, people were having to wait. So it's interesting to see not just who was missing, but, you know, who decided to stay and who is still like, you know, working the classic bike route. Oh, the old classic bike. Yeah. You've drank that specialized Kool-Aid. Yeah. Huh? It's delicious. <laughs> got, got call them classic bike. Yeah. Delicious, just like the free beer. There was free beer this year, this which I don't know why they were uh, doing that. But Uinta, Uinta, yeah, Uinta, yeah, this is good beer and it was tasty. It was free, you get as much as you wanted. Yeah, double IPAs in the sun. It's a good combo. <laughs> what I want to know is who the guy on the bus was that came to both days of the outdoor demo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Word was that uh, a lot of people skipped the second day. You know, they went out for the first day, and then the second day they're like, "I'm just going to hang out at the pool in Vegas." So. Yeah, we did it. Uh, you know, typically we're there for the whole week. You know, we'll, we'll go Monday and do both days outdoor demo, and then we'll do at least all day Wednesday and Thursday at the indoor show, and either leave Thursday night or Friday. But um, yeah, we did an abbreviated itinerary this year, I guess, and came in on uh, Tuesday and left Thursday afternoon, and I think that was plenty of time, as it turned out. Yeah, well, let's talk about the indoor show. That's the portion of the show that runs Wednesday through Friday. Uh, so three days, it's the bigger portion of the show. What do you guys think this year compared to years past? So the footprint of the show was a lot smaller than in years past, which made it easier to get around. And I thought it was probably a good thing because it kept people together, kept the energy uh, pretty high. And so it felt pretty cool and there's still like a lot of traffic, but you know, it's a smaller footprint and there are a lot of brands that were conspicuously absent. You know, I talked to, uh, like one really small brand that might've been like their first year there and they, they were doing like sleeping pads and sleeping bags and we're targeting the bike packing market, but like a bunch of big bike packing brands that made an appearance last year weren't there this year. Um, there's like no mountain bike brands except for pivot and one or two others. So all let's say 
there were a lot of people to talk to. My schedule is still absolutely packed, but there are a lot of big people that weren't there. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, I don't even know, 40% smaller, maybe even there's an entire exhibition hall that they didn't even use this year compared to previous years. So, you know, you had that and then there was, I, you know, they had like a lot of weird little like speaker areas. I don't know if you guys noticed those, like, but they were in yeah. the middle of the show floor. So that was taking up what otherwise would have been booth space. And then if you kind of got out towards the edges of the, um, of the, the show floor, you could see that it was getting pretty sparse around there. So I think they had a hard time even filling, you know, the, the smaller footprint this year. Like Greg said, there weren't really any bike brands there. Um, I mean, at least on the, on the mountain bike side of things, um, apart from pivot and, you know, maybe focus had a couple mountain bikes in their booth. Um, but yeah, mostly again, it was just all e-bikes, like all types of e-bikes too. I mean, they had a lot of it was, is commuter, um, driven. So there's, you know, city bikes and cargo bikes that are all e-versions of those, but, uh, you know, still a decent amount of component companies. We saw a lot of apparel and kind of the brands that are are there year in year out, but you didn't have those big. You know, you didn't have your uh, what like anchor stores like in a mall. You know, you didn't have the 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 specialized and Trek and well, I mean Trek hasn't been there for a long time, and it's been a while for Giant as well. But you know, specialized usually it's usually around, but they bailed this year too. So yeah, I really noticed that too in terms of. Uh you know, there there are certain brands in the industry like Specialized or Santa Cruz or Yeti, especially when we're talking about mountain bikes that tend to set the trends and, you know, really continue to be innovative. You know, not only are they innovative, but they're big enough brands where, you know, if they decide to do something, it's going to move others to, you know, try to come up with something better or they're going to follow. Uh, but those brands weren't at the show this year. So it was really hard to get a feel for like what you know, the next big things are going to be and, you know, who's going to follow who and it's e-bikes, Jeff. Right. It's well, e-bikes. I guess, I guess that's the answer that it's Being e-bikes rammed and, down our throats. Yeah. Maybe there's going to be an offshoot show that's like all mountain bike and, you know, the core brands, but yeah, it does feel a little bit like the industry is, I don't know, being taken over or being co-opted. I don't know. Or maybe we're just going underground. I uh, saw a pretty great post, um, from, was a drunk cyclist and they posted a photo. I'm not sure how legit it is. Supposedly it was posted on Transition's door and uh, they the little printed thing said, we don't have any shitty e-bikes to show at Interbike this year, so we're taking all of our employees to Revelstoke and we're going to go shred. We'll see you guys in a couple of days. <laughs> I was like, all right, Transition. That's pretty making your statement for sure. Yeah, I don't think Transition would ever launch an e-bike, but you never know, man. I mean, you know, Pivot did. That was kind of a surprise. And then, uh, Rocky Mountain did. Rocky Mountain did. They're a lot bigger brand though. Um, that wasn't totally expected coming from them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Santa Cruz hasn't, you know, they haven't entirely ruled it out. So, you know, I think it's only maybe only a matter of time. Indeed. So what trends did you guys pick up on at the show? Definitely electronics and, uh, you know, connected things. I know, like, we see this kind of crap on, for stuff for the home all the time. Like, you have a connected toaster and a, you know, a smart coffee maker. People are trying to cram this stuff into, you know, sunglasses and helmets and pumps and whatever, trying to make it smart, I guess. But it's like, I don't, 
I don't need another thing to charge or, you know, connect to my phone or whatever. I just need a helmet and some sunglasses. Yeah. There is, it seemed like every booth had like flashing lights in it, you know, like <laughs> there are so many jerseys that have like LEDs sewn into them and socks with LEDs on them. Uh, like even, you know, lights for biking at night are getting Bluetooth in them so you can, you know, use your phone to control your light. Like, yeah. You can text your light. You can say, hey, light, brighten up. Right, exactly. So, yeah, electronics everywhere. So one trend that I noticed across a lot of booths is a lot of incremental improvements in products. So instead of just launching an all-new products, many brands were like, hey, yeah, you know, here's the same helmet that you've already tested or that we had last year, but we changed this, this, and this about it, and it's way better. And also we cut the price on it. So, I mean, I saw this across... Uh, quite a few brands, which isn't super sexy, but is really good for the consumer, right? The product just keeps getting better. The price doesn't get any higher. Lots of times it's going down. So uh, that's a really good thing. I think a good example is uh, G-Forms Pro X elbow pads. They improved the stitching and the quality, made them look a little bit fancier. But at the same time, they dropped the price 20 bucks, which doesn't sound like much until you realize they dropped them from $79 to $59, which is a pretty massive uh, price drop. And so that was sort of a trend. I saw a lot of brands uh, echo. So at the end of the day, that's really good for the consumer, but it's not like super sexy or anything. And we're all about sexy bike products here. <laughs> we only do sexy reviews. If you've seen uh, any of Jeff's bib, bib's <laughs> reviews, you know, yeah, you know we're all about sex. Unfortunately, I got comments on that. People, people <laughs> Unfortunately. Were, yes. They were like, oh, yeah, I saw that. Somebody get this guy a sandwich. <laughs> Bikepacking is still pretty hot, I'd say. Uh, I saw a couple cool bag companies there. One was called Roadrunner Bags out of Los Angeles, and... There, there's actually a few people working there. You know, a lot of these um, kind of custom bag makers are uh, just, you know, uh, one person sitting in their garage or basement sewing away. But um, they actually have, uh, you know, several people working there, and they don't really do custom stuff. I guess it's all kind of like modest production runs. But they had a really cool handlebar bag called the Jammer. Um, they had two different sizes of it. One was huge. I mean, you could fit like couple cases of beer up there if your bars could take it but yeah just like really nice well thought out bags and then another company that had bags there was called green guru and they make all their stuff um out of like recycled tubes or reclaimed materials so that's some really cool bags that were just kind of like you know they end up with interesting designs because maybe you know you have reclaimed material you don't have a big enough piece to do the entire outside of the bag. So it's like stitched together different smaller pieces of fabric. So you get a lot of cool color combinations and some kind of funky designs going on. So yeah, it's, it's good to see that because I think that's bike packing while trendy is also, um, you know, it's, I think it's good for the sport kind of gives it back to its roots of adventure and just having fun and not taking things so seriously. Yeah. Speaking of bags, I met with Ortlieb, and they have a whole line of bikepacking bags and things. Um, but they were talking about the zippers that they use and how they manufacture their own zippers. That's and impressive. And I said to the guy, I said, 
I thought there was only like one company in the world that made all the zippers, YKK. And he said, no, there's two. Like, we're the other one. <laughs> and yeah, it turns out that they make their own zippers and they make them for other people as well. But then to connect this with another company, and maybe this is a trend, but uh, Lazine or Lazine, I'm not sure how you're supposed to say it. I That's like how Lazine. I say it. Yeah. yeah, let's say it like that. They actually own their own factory in Taiwan which is unusual. You know, a lot of products that you buy are produced in like a contract factory, but Lazine, which isn't, you know, it's not a huge company, but they uh, chose, you know, several years ago to, to make their own factory and they produce like everything there, like lights and GPS units and tools and all kinds of stuff, which, you know, they say gives them more control and finding things that are made in the USA anymore is, you know, it's impossible, but it seems like maybe the next best thing is if, the company actually owns their factory and they can, you know, work closely with it to get good quality. Um, but also potentially they can make sure that the workers are paid appropriately and all that kind of stuff, um, which is important to people these days. And then also, I'll, you know, we mentioned e-bikes. That was obviously big at the indoor show as well. But there are also tons of components and accessories that companies are rolling out specifically for e-bikes. So I saw a number of tires that are designed especially for e-bikes, saddles even, you know, there's e-bike helmets and all kinds of stuff, bike racks that are meant to hold e-bikes. Basically, you know, the whole industry seems to be in a position where they feel like they need to have something new and uh, exciting and e-bikes is are the thing right now. Um, and so you're seeing all kinds of products that kind of cater to that. So what were some interesting products that you guys found at Interbike this year? Were there any surprises or just cool things you found? So one of the neatest ones I spotted was a prototype mountain bike that had a full carbon frame but had an internal rear shock that was basically tucked under near the bottom bracket. So check out the article on the site for some photos and visuals. Um, But it was pretty wild looking. And uh, a lot of people sort of wrote it off as they walked by. But it turns out after talking with the people that one of the co-founders of Niner, and I probably am going to butcher his name, but Steve Damahidi. Probably totally wrong. Anyhow, as a dude that designed the bike. So it's pretty well conceived, in my opinion. At least it looks like it. Um, and it has like a carbon cover that goes and covers the shock for when you're actually out riding. And according to some people, um, it keeps the crap out, but also doubles as a bash guard. and sort of reinforced to slide over crap. So it all looks like it makes sense. So it'll be interesting to see when they bring it to market, if they bring it to market, what it looks like then. It could be as early as spring 2018. Yeah, I I don't know about that bike. They somehow managed to make a regular mountain bike look like an e-bike with the shock arrangement. And, you know, I know you said it was a bash guard, but if you're bashing that part of your frame, then uh, that's not good. Because that's, <laughs> that's like up past your chain ring, you know. So if you're dragging that part of the frame, you're probably crashing. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, it's uh, it was designed by Steve, I think, Domahidi. So, you know, maybe there's some benefits to it, but I'm just wondering, you know, why it seems like uh, one of those products that's uh, a solution looking for a problem. I mean, shocks do get dirty, yes, but is the answer to shove it inside the frame? I don't think so. So, I don't know, maybe there's some, you know, I mean, I guess it, it does keep the center of gravity a lot lower in the frame, which helps with handling and it's very centered, but... And I mean, maybe you can fit two water bottles in the front triangle. 
which is kind of cool. Yeah. But I want to hear what the rest of the uh, supposed benefits are of doing it that way. My impression was it was more of a like uh, proof of concept or uh, you know right. some a show bike, a prototype bike to show off uh, the company Partis's you know ability to make cool carbon shapes and stuff, um, and and maybe also their design chops. You know, something nobody's ever done before. You know, there's a good chance nobody will do it again. It's like a concept car. You know, uh, that, at least that was my impression. Uh, but also, this bike was supposedly designed around uh, some sort of electronic shock system coming from Fox, right? Uh, it just has routing for it. I yeah, mean, it's not. I don't but think so it was is designed that, around. Well, does it need more? Is it more sensitive? Like you need to cover up the wires more or something? No, I mean all that would be routed internally anyway. But that's what they were saying to me when I was chatting with them, that it was basically designed around this new shock that's supposed to be coming soon. And it has to, the shock has to have a separate um, battery mount. So they've got the battery mount already like built into it. And then it's got the routing and everything already go. But they were like, hey, this shock is supposed to be like 1200 plus like MSRP. Basically, that was their argument. Like, we're going to protect this super expensive shock as much as possible. Yeah, but if I mean, if your shock's inside your front triangle, then it's protected. I'm just saying, like this Fox Live thing has been supposed supposedly coming out for years now. Like Pivot has already, you know, check any of their frames. They're, they're Fox Live compatible. Rocky's frames are Fox Live compatible. All these companies are like have the wiring ready. I mean, it's just adding ports. Like that's not that big a deal. So I'm still, like I said, I'm just skeptical. It just sounds like a bunch of BS to me. Yeah, I'm surprised you would need a separate battery mount too. Like, why is that not just on the shock itself? Interesting. All right, uh, what else, Greg? Would you see at the show? Probably the second most intriguing thing I saw was another rear suspension design um, from Tantrum Cycles, and it's called the Missing Link Suspension Design. And basically, this promises. Okay, I'm going to try to explain it. It's it sounds complicated, <laughs> but it's sort of complicated. But basically, um, the way the shock is positioned, as the angle of the hill turns up and pedaling pressure increases, you know your shock sag is generally around thirty percent if you're on like this long travel one sixty five mil enduro bike. So you've got a shock sag of about thirty percent. As the hill gets steeper, as you're going uphill, basically the shock lengthens and it pushes out the shock shaft. And essentially, you should get to 0% sag and sort of locked out shock. But the valving is still open, so supposedly if you hit a rock, it still responds to that while being fully stiff under pedaling pressure. But since your shock is reducing your sag as you're climbing... That means that your head tube angle is steepening, which then allows the bike designers to run like really slack head tube angles. Like one of the bikes has a 63.5 degree head tube angle, which is pretty dang slack, but it should ride steeper when you're climbing and slack when you're descending. So they claim it gives you the best of all the worlds. Yeah, I think the idea is that it just doesn't get any slacker. It doesn't actually steepen your head tube angle because that 63 and a half degrees is a static measurement right and like when you're climbing on a really slack bike and you sink further into the travel that then rakes out your head head angle and that's why like a lot of enduro bikes like you're trying to like fight the front end you know and it's like really hard to keep the front wheel weighted so yeah i stopped and talked to that guy for a little bit too and it's uh it's a it's a cool looking bike and you know it's aluminum bikes i like metal bikes so 
I was into it, something different. And he's he's designed Brian Berthold. Um, he's designed some other suspension platforms over the years in the bike industry. So he knows what he's talking about. Trying to line something up. Uh, I guess he lives in Ohio, and he said he'd be willing to uh, drive down and meet us over the the winter down here and get a test ride in. So looking forward to that. He's uh, they did like a Kickstarter for the frames, and um, they're in production now. So. Pretty cool to see somebody doing something different and making their own way. So speaking of weird stuff, that's what I usually like checking out at Interbike. I like finding products that are um, not necessarily designed for mountain biking or, you know, there's not a mountain bike application yet. But uh, I like to think about products and see, like, that maybe there's going to be an application in the future. So uh, one of the things that I looked at this year was the Fumpa, which is an electric pump for inflating your tires and it's like this little cube thing that you charge up it's got a rechargeable battery on it and it's a pump uh and it's i mean it it doesn't make any sense like i tried to (laughs) i tried to think about you know who this will be for and you know i i wrote about it on the site so you can see sort of my analysis of it you know there are a few things that it does better than like co2 or a mini pump uh but you know you only get a couple of inflations out of it and so doesn't seem like it's super useful, but apparently some bike packers or at least bike tour people are interested in using it or are testing it out. So maybe, you know, maybe as batteries get more powerful or compact, something like this will make sense. But right now, uh, it's just, it's just a weird, interesting product. I also saw something called the Aerofly power meter, which is a power meter that works basically using the pressure in your tires. So, it's just a thing that you screw onto the valve cap on your rear wheel. And basically it measures changes in pressure. Like every time you put your pedal down for a pedal stroke, uh, it can sense that. It can sense the change in pressure. And then it combines that information with the rotation of the wheel um, and some of the other forces. And it, I would say it guesses your power. Um, it's, <laughs> I think at this point it's like, accurate within 10%, uh, which is not very accurate compared to other solutions on the market, but it is really lightweight. It's super small. I mean, it's like as big as your thumbnail and it's much less expensive than a lot of the other power solutions that are out there. Um, I asked uh, one of the people at the booth there, I don't know if he was the owner or the inventor or both, um, but he said that it should work for mountain biking um, because, you know, I, I was worried that you hit a bump like a rock or a root or something that's clearly going to, you know, change the pressure reading on your tire. Um, and he said the algorithm can filter some of that out. Um, but also you can kind of, uh, I guess, I don't know. You can deal with that somehow. Software sounds like there's a software update coming. (laughs) (laughs) So I also saw some new inner tubes from Tubolito and they're basically using TPU, which is, uh, thermoplastic to make tubes you know traditional tubes are made from butyl uh, basically rubber and that stuff you know we're all familiar with this it's kind of heavy uh, and you know takes up a lot of space in your pack but a tubolito tube weighs less than half as much as even a lightweight tube Uh, it's much more compact it's about half the size and they claim that it's even more durable that it's more puncture resistant than a normal tube and if you feel it, it feels really weird. It's almost like a, 
like a pool float or something, like a really thick pool float. And it's cool too because it's like translucent and orange. Like it doesn't look like anything you've ever seen, you know, in terms of a bike tube. Uh, there's no word on how expensive these are going to be. They're definitely going to be priced at a premium. Uh, but, you know, it could be a good thing to throw in your pack because, you know, it doesn't take up a lot of space and hopefully you never have to use it if you're running tubeless tires. And then I guess along the same lines with the tires, I also saw a company that sells a tubeless tire liner. It's like a whole tire, but it's also got a liner inside of it uh, to hold your tubeless sealant. I need to do some more research on it to figure out exactly what problem this is solving. But, uh, but yeah, it was there. It exists. Once again, solutions looking for problems. Yeah. I didn't see anything uh, as weird or as groundbreaking as you did, Jeff, but I saw, I saw some cool stuff. KS, the dropper post company, they make so many different droppers. They make an electronic dropper now. Um, they've got carbon fiber droppers. They've got you know inexpensive droppers. They've got super swanky high-end droppers, and they've really expanded their range even more this year. So they've added basically all these different travel lengths and all these different post diameters. They have a ton of 27.2 options now where they've always had a couple, but they're doing like internal routing for uh, 27.2 posts, which is cool for people that have, you know, older hardtails or have cross country race bikes or even gravel bikes that you want to put a dropper post on. You can, you can do that now. Uh, like their carbon post, which was kind of just aimed at the cross country race crowd beforehand, they've now got it in I think up to like 150 or maybe 170 travel lengths. So you can, if you want to ball out and you want a really light dropper, you can put one of those on your enduro bike. So yeah, lots of cool new product from them, and apparently they've made a lot of changes to the internals to make them uh, more robust and uh, you know more durable. And that's all like rolling changes. So if you've bought a post recently apparently it already has the new internals which is pretty cool otherwise you know saw some other cool products from uh sr sun tour their uh suspension range just continues to get refined and dialed i've actually got their uh new oron 29er fork in for testing uh it's a big 36 millimeter stanchion trail fork so along the lines of like the fox 36 or competing with the pike and been really impressed with it so far. Otherwise, went by Box Components. Um, they've got some cool stuff going on. You know, they're probably most known for their drivetrain, which was a, had a unique push-push lever. We actually had Chris Daniels review that, so if you're interested, you can check that out online. But they got into some little IP trouble and uh, had to abandon the single lever design, and now they've gone to a push-push dual lever system actually i guess it's it's like uh shimano where you can release either way but yeah so they've got uh their highest level one drivetrain and then they've introduced a lower price point uh box two drivetrain um now they're making their own chains to go along with it and they have a seven speed downhill specific group as well uh and in addition to that they're expanding their their wheels i just recently reviewed some of their carbon wheels and was pretty impressed with them but they're going forward they're offering uh, more rim widths and possibly some new hub options in the future so cool to see another component company out there yeah for sure 
Well, at the start of the show, we talked about outdoor demo and what the scene was like out there. What did you guys actually end up doing out there? What were some specific bikes uh, that you tested and what were your impressions? So the first bike I rode was the Zero Tenowa, and I'm probably butchering that name as well, but it was a full suspension carbon enduro rig, but it features a Pinion C-Series internal gearbox drivetrain. And I rode a Pinion for the first time, actually an outdoor demo last year, so my second time on it. And it makes a lot more sense to me on a full suspension bike, actually, because you really remove a lot of weight from the rear wheel of the bicycle, move it to the bottom bracket, which keeps it centered, and it also becomes unsprung weight, supposedly, which I still don't 100% understand that bit. But basically, out on the trail, uh, the bike feels a lot more centered, the rear end feels lighter, which makes it very poppy and playful for what it was, so uh, I really enjoyed it. The only downer was the bike I rode was like $9,500, so it's not not cheap. On the other end of the price spectrum, I guess, I rode a KHS 650-7500. And I, on the this bike, the real story is the price, which was 3500 MSRP. And it was a decently well-spec bike for that with a Fox 36 up front uh, and a SLX drivetrain, decent Fox rear shock. And it was a 160 mil travel enduro rig. Um, after riding the Zerode, it didn't feel like anything super special, but you know, if you're looking for a pretty well-specced Enduro rig and you don't want to spend a ton of money, yeah, you can get on all right with this bike. Yeah, so one of the bikes that I rode was the Haro Shift Plus, and I didn't realize that I actually rode it two years ago, so it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't a super good use of my time. Uh, but didn't stand out. I, I guess one. it wasn't very memorable either, unfortunately. Uh, but Based on this ride, I would say it rides pretty well for a $2,900 full suspension bike, uh, but it wasn't super exciting. Uh, the, I guess the difference, the one I rode two years ago didn't have a dropper post, um, and this version does, uh, but that dropper post adds 300 bucks. So, you, I mean, you can get a pretty nice dropper post for under 300 bucks. Yeah, they must, yeah. They must not have a hookup at a dropper post company. Yeah. And this one too, they had all, there were some problems getting it set up. I first went out and like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't stay raised up. So if you're going to buy this bike, buy it without the dropper and put your own dropper post on it. And then I also rode the KHS team 29, which is like a really racy carbon hardtail mountain bike. And I mean, everything on this bike is carbon, you know, seat post, handlebars, stem, like everything is carbon. Um, and it, Obviously, it's a really lightweight bike, and I wasn't super excited about riding it out at Bootleg Canyon because you know the trails there are fairly rocky and uh, can be can be tough on a hardtail. But I actually ended up having a good time on this bike. It didn't feel too harsh or anything, uh, you know, especially compared to carbon hardtails that I've tested in the past. You know, thinking specifically several years ago, it seemed like the carbon bikes were were just really stiff and unforgiving. Whereas this one, you know, it rode really well. The bike also had the newish Fox Stepcast fork on it, uh, which worked really, really well. And, you know, I think this is a, this is a great bike. It looks like it's, you know, just all race, super cross country. But, you know, if you think about it, how cross country courses are changing these days where they're getting a little bit more gnarly, a little bit, a little bit rowdier, uh, this bike, you know, it's going to be fast, but it's also not going to beat you up. So seems like a good option. It is an expensive bike, though. I think is the one I rode is close to six thousand dollars retail. 
uh, which might be surprising. I didn't I didn't realize KHS made bikes that are that expensive. Yeah. I only got out for one test ride. I rode the Marin B17, which is a new bike for them. It's a full suspension plus bike. I think it's 130 front travel and 120 rear. A really good looking bike. It had this like nice brushed aluminum frame, at least a front triangle, and then like a black rear triangle. Pretty good build on it. It's actually kind of, the build was interesting because for such a short travel bike, it had a piggyback rear shock on it, which was, uh, you know, usually don't see see that on bikes with just 120 mil of travel. So, you know, the ride was, was okay. Uh, it wasn't that inspiring or anything. Part of that, I think, was uh, that the tires were way overinflated when I first got on, but I let a bunch of air out and that helped a ton. But the, the fork wasn't quite dialed in for me so you know that it's you know not uncommon for those things to happen on a brief test ride but um you know and i'm not the hugest fan of plus bikes full disclosure but it was uh fun enough that i would be interested in spending more time on one let's say and um yeah i think that's the only thing i got out for an actual ride on but greg i think you're missing one from your list yeah (laughs) something real weird tell about Okay, it's called a Glide. Uh, there might be a brand name. I don't really remember. But uh, it's basically electric scooter with – had a lot of bike components on. So I had some bike wheels. Like one was set up as like a full-blown fat bike that was intended for military use, like as an actual mock-up prototype for a military bid. Uh, but the one I rode was a production model. And basically it's like a throttle scooter. And – it was a heck of a lot of fun. Like I was a bit skeptical when I first jumped on it. I was like, man, am I going to be able to balance? But it was super intuitive right off the bat. And the thing actually carved really well. So like there was a, a like paved test loop that had some, you know, corners and switchbacks and stuff. So it wasn't just like a flat ground. And the thing carved around the corners pretty well. I was impressed. And I got back to the booth and the dude was like, oh, do you ski? I was like, well, yeah, you know, I, I've been skiing since the age of eight or something like that. And he's like, yeah, I designed it to basically feel like carving on skis. And I was like, oh, I could totally see that. So anyhow, I had a pretty good time on that. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll buy this e-bike. <laughs> E-scooters is the next big thing. I was I was confused about why they were at Interbike. They had a bunch of bike components on this thing. Uh, the frames are actually welded by the dude that welds Santana frames in California. So there's some parallels and there's some component similarities, but it's not a bicycle. So <laughs> I was a bit, bit confused there. So besides demoing a bunch of bikes and walking around and talking to people at the indoor show, what else did you guys do at Interbike? Anything else interesting? I, I didn't really get into much. Um, you know, I'm not much of a gambler at all. So <laughs> You know, I'm not really attracted to the casinos or anything like that. So it was pretty much just work and then, uh, you know, meeting up with people for a drink or two sometimes and then, you know, trying to get to bed early and be a good boy so you can get up and do it again the next day. So I didn't didn't really do anything super cool. Yeah, we missed Carrot Top this year. I know, we did. It sold out. Yeah. No, it wasn't. (laughs) We just didn't go. And we've never been, just to be clear. (laughs) 
Oh, guys, I did finally spend some money. I plugged five bucks into a slot machine at the at the airport before I flew out. So <laughs> I pulled the lever until it was all gone. Sweet. Yeah, Greg, you and I saw uh, Blood Road, which is Rebecca Rush's movie that she made with Red Bull. Tell us a little bit about that. So yeah, I was actually really excited to uh, check this out because we posted a trailer to the site a few months back, and it's uh it's been out and it's sort of been like a on a film tour. So they've been screening it all over the place, but I hadn't seen it yet. And I saw they were screening it in her bike, so I put it on my schedule like weeks in advance. And it's a bit hard to explain the movie and do it justice in words. So you should just go see it and you should watch the trailer and then want to go see it. But the basic synopsis is that uh, Rebecca Rush's father was shot down and killed in Vietnam when she was about three. Um, and that sort of is impacted her entire life, but she decided to, uh, mountain bike the entire 1,200 mile Ho Chi Minh Trail, which goes through a few different countries and attempt to locate and visit his crash site along the way. So the movie was produced by Red Bull Media House and the production quality is just incredible, but it's, it's unlike any Red Bull film you've ever seen before, you know? Yeah, it's really well done. And, uh, you know, I found myself tearing up a bunch of times during the movie, you know, it was really emotional, especially for me, you know, as an air force vet and as a dad too, like it, it, it hits hard, uh, you know, that movie and seeing the emotion that's involved. Uh, and it's also uh, important to note that part of this movie is it's, uh, Rebecca Rush is using it as sort of a fundraising effort to help the people of Vietnam. Uh, you know, they're still recovering from the war that was, 30, 40 years ago there. There's a lot of unexploded uh, bombs that are littering the countryside there. And she saw a lot of that along her way on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And so um, she's trying to use this movie to raise awareness and raise funds for, uh, you know, continuing to clean up the country and to keep people safe. Because people are still getting killed and maimed by these bombs that they're finding, you know, as they're plowing a rice rice field or whatever. And so, um, yeah, it's a, it's pretty intense, but it's a pretty it's a pretty awesome movie to see. All right, so Greg, you were walking around asking a number of people uh, a few questions to get a sense of you know trends in the health of the mountain bike industry. So, what did you find? Are people stoked about mountain biking in 2017, heading into 2018? You know, despite like sales numbers being down and a lot of industry metrics being down, all of the people I talk to about the mountain bike industry are super optimistic. Uh, basically, everybody said the mountain bike industry is doing well and it's in a good position and there are good things coming down the road. But my follow-up question was, you know, what challenges do you think we're facing or we will be facing in the mountain bike industry? And what I found interesting was that I probably heard like a half dozen different challenges. Like it wasn't just one response. Uh, a few of the common ones were uh, e-bikes and trail access being a big challenge. We've already beat that drum in this episode. So that was mentioned a number of times. But another one were uh, independent bike retailers and figuring out how to optimize that and keep them in business. Related to that, uh, the best way to get product to the consumer like whether that's IBDs or something else, um, in online, that sort of thing. And then also consumer focus is reducing prices and the cost of entry for the consumer to get new people into the sport, but not have them have to pay just, you know, out the nose just to get started. So, uh, it's interesting to note that 
a lot of people see a lot of different challenges. So while mountain bike industry could be in a good place, like we've got a lot of things to deal with over the next few years. Yeah. So finally, you know, this is the last year that Interbike is being held in Vegas. Uh, next year it's moving to Reno. So are you guys excited? Are you going to miss Las Vegas? No, I will not miss Vegas at all. You know, I, I don't think I've ever been to Vegas before going to Interbike and I don't foresee myself returning there for any reason. Um, so all my buddies out there, if you're getting married and you're going to have a bachelor party, don't have it in Vegas, please. <laughs> yeah, so definitely won't miss Vegas. I know Vegas is easy to hate, but hey, um, I'll jump on that train. I've never been to Reno or, or Tahoe where they're going to do the outdoor portion of the show next year. So, you know, I'm skeptically optimistic, maybe. You know, I was kind of taken aback by how how much the show shrank this year in Vegas. And I don't know if that was people just saying, you know what, like Vegas hasn't been that, you know, we haven't really seen the return we've been wanting to see going to Interbike in Vegas. So maybe we'll just pull out this year and then we'll we'll rejoin things in in Reno. So I don't know if that was the case or if people are just like, you know what, this trade show format just doesn't work, period. So yeah, I I, I don't know you know, I don't know how much it'll how much better it'll be. You know, it's like this the show was already smaller this year and I've I've heard uh derogatory comments about Reno being a you know a shittier, smaller Vegas. So <laughs> you know, hopefully that's not not indicative of what's going to happen to the show. I, I think that I think there's a lot of potential for the, um, at least for the outdoor portion of the show, just because it'll be a better venue for riding. It is going to be, you know, lift service. Um, and they're trying to make it more of a festival atmosphere. They're trying to get bands and, uh, one, one of the days will be open to consumers. So they're trying to get, you know, get more people out there. So, Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that's the right way to go with it. And maybe that portion of the show will do better than the indoor portion. I mean, you, know, you see events like Outer Bike having a lot of success with that formula. So maybe it'll work for Inner Bike as well. Well, Aaron basically said what I was going to say, but having, I haven't spent much time in Reno, but having driven through Reno and looked at it, it basically does look like a smaller, shittier version of Vegas, at least in the downtown portion. So I'm not really uh, optimistic about the show and that vibe, but but Tahoe's amazing. So I haven't ridden North Star specifically, but the whole Tahoe region is incredible. So I'm pretty stoked, again, on that outdoor portion, I think, has a lot of promise. So hopefully... The brands show up. I mean, that's really what we need, right? Is the brands to be there to have bikes to ride? Because if they're they aren't there, then you know it's not going to be any better. <laughs> Maybe I'll bring my own bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like they are on the right track because uh, you know brands are more than willing to bring bikes out when they know their consumers they're going to be there to test them out. You know, we saw that with Cyclofest, uh, the East Coast demo event that Interbike puts on. And Cyclofest is back again this year, so just next month, the whole thing's going to happen in Charlotte again, uh, and Aaron and I will probably be there. Still TBD on you know exactly which brands will be there, but it looks like there are some interesting ones like Mondraker, which is launching in the U.S. Uh, they're going to be there, and I think some of the other larger brands will be there as well. Because again, you know the, this event's open to consumers, and so. The brands can justify, you know, that they're 
selling bikes to people, you know, not at the show, you know, I'm thinking buy bikes at the show, but, right. but if they can at least, you know, introduce people to their brand and, you know, get them to go back and bother their local bike shop and say, how come you guys don't carry this brand? Uh, I think they're finding some success with that. So, uh, yeah, this should be a good event. And then Reno. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you guys. The only thing I'm bummed about is that it's going to take longer to fly there. I think it's not a big airport like Vegas where you can, you know, fly in and out any time of the day and it's a little bit it's a sleepier vegas yeah it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens with the number of brands coming because you got to think for international brands especially it's going to be that much more difficult for them to get to reno than it was to get to vegas so i don't know we'll see i you know it, you know, specialize in track and giant have all left and they're all doing their own things and you know when you're a shop that's involved with one of those brands that can pretty much cover everything they cover. You know, you can, you sell their bikes, you sell their helmets, you sell their shoes, you sell their packs and tools and tubes and tires. So, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of those brands offer uh one-stop shopping. So, you know, if, if you're a dealer that is involved with one of those brands and you have no incentive to come to the show, right? That's just, wasted money frankly so and it's you know not really in specialized or whoever's interest any of those big brands not just picking on specialized here but it's not uh really in their interest to go there spend a bunch of money be one of the kind of anchor exhibitors there and then in in turn end up helping smaller brands get a platform to show their stuff you know because that's just future competition for them so looking at it from a purely business perspective you can see why they do it, but for the industry health as a whole, maybe it's a bit unfortunate. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of challenges that trade shows in general and Interbike specifically are facing, so it's going to be fun to watch and see what happens over the next few years. Well, that's all we've got for this episode. If you'd like to read up on more detailed information about what we saw at the show or to see photos and videos, be sure to check Singletracks and follow us on Facebook where you'll always get the best, most interesting news of the day. Talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.